set list in association with Seven Digital. This week, Pitchfork, Touts and Spotify. Welcome to Setlist, the music business podcast from CMU. I'm Andy Malt. With me is Chris Cook. Hello, Chris. Hello there. As ever, we are going to take a look back through some of the biggest and most interesting music industry news stories of the last week. A week when we found out about those top secret HMV bidders we were talking about last week. Only one of them. Only one of them. That's all you need, isn't it? Over uh, promising there. Yes, we talked a lot about HMV going back into administration. Yeah, actually, KPMG didn't say who the bidders were, but I think they said they had numerous bids. So that's more than one, isn't it? That's what we were talking about on last week's set list. We said, although KPMG, the administrators of HMV, had said they'd had interest because they set a deadline, didn't they? Yeah, because you got to. Deadline had passed. Deadlines are important. Interested in acquiring HMV had come forward. But we had reports... I think this began with Sky News. It did. Well done, Sky News, for having the scoop on this. Yeah. This is us crediting Sky News for their scoop on this. They had the scoop that uh, Mike on Ashley... This. On this. <laughs> that uh, Mike Ashley of Sports Direct was one of the bidders through his business, Sports Direct International. Mm-hmm. Having said that, everyone kind of expected him to be one of the bidders. Yeah. Because a number of retail chains in the UK... Not music, because there are no other music no. <laughs> retail chains. But a number of uh, other retail companies in the UK have kind of gone under in the last year, and he has bought at least two of them, I think. Am I right in thinking that the big old HMV on Oxford Street became a Sports Direct? Oh, the one that wasn't the original one, but was the one that then ceased to be the one? Yeah. It became something like Sports Direct, and it might have been Sports Direct. I think it was. This will become as a big shock to you. Andy Malt, and, mm. and to our listeners, I'm not a Sports Direct customer. Wow. I have never been in a Sports Direct. I have because in my life I've needed cheap trainers. And also I think I possibly went into that Sports Direct because a band I was working with got a song playlisted on the in-store radio in Sports Direct once. And I went to check if it was playing. None of this makes sense because... You wouldn't have been working with artists at the point at which that HMV ceased to be an HMV. I wasn't working with the artists at the time, I don't think. But it happened. This I think it was a song that they wrote, they recorded when I was working with them. I'm also wondering whether you're thinking of the old Virgin Megastore rather than oh, the old maybe I am. HMV Oxford Street. Where was that? Well, that was right That became a court. sports direct, yeah. But glad- maybe the HMV, <laughs> I'm going to Google it now. I'm glad we got to the bottom of that. What is the <laughs> old HMV? on Oxford Street. We should stress now that if Mike Ashley now, of Sports Direct was to buy HMV, he's not proposing to turn them all into Sports Direct. His plan is to continue running HMV as HMV. Well, selling that short-sighted. Records and, uh, you know, CDs and DVDs and a few games and stuff like that. It did become a Sports Direct. The HMV did, yeah. as well as the Virgin Megastore. Yeah, well, there's Sports Direct everywhere on Oxford Street. Apparently. It's the whole of Oxford Street now just one massive Sports Direct, apart from the HMV that is being bought by Sports Direct, which what will then become the Sports old <laughs> Virgin Megastore on... Oh, too many hours in Street. Double E. Now. <laughs> well, not now. It might become something else. Oh, there's a Wikipedia page on it. What's happening here? Is huh? that um, <laughs> this is good radio? For mo- <laughs> well, fortunately, this isn't radio, so it doesn't yeah, matter I'm that sure it is terrible radio. 
For every edition of Setlist we've recorded for the last few months, we've always been on a really tight deadline. Either because the studio where we record this has been in demand and we've had to get out of the way because some proper people are coming in, or I've got a really important meeting to go to. Today we have more flexibility in the schedule. <laughs> Which is why Andy has now gone on a uh, Google search hike. It really doesn't matter what the old version oh, no, Megastore was. it became Zavi. I mean, that's, well, obviously uh, it became Zavi. The digital spy forums really letting me down here. I think we can uh, just say that uh, these Sky News rumours better be true. Now we've spent all of this time discussing... What is the old <laughs> sports <direct> Zavi? <laughs> ...on Tottenham Court Road. I think... It's not Sports Direct, but maybe it is a sort of similar type of thing. Yeah, I think it probably did become, yeah. And then they they levelled up to HMV. Anyway. But we may never know because I'm going to give up. The point is that Mike Ashley of Sports Direct fame is possibly, according to Sky News, a bidder for the HMV business, which is currently administration. And the report was that, because as I say, Everyone expected him to be one of the bidders. Yeah. But the actual bit of news was that he'd been having meetings with the record companies and the music distributors and the DVD companies and the gaming companies saying, if I buy this company, what can we do to make it a success for at least another 20 minutes 20 minutes after he has bought it? So that is a very, very long, <laughs> rambling uh, two-sentence update to the HMV story we talked about on last week's set list, which we're not even here to talk about on this People week's set list. We've got some really interesting insight into the journalistic process. Though. Of uh, former music stores on Oxford Street and what they now are. What are we here to talk about this week? Well, this week we're going to talk about some developments in the secondary ticketing market because, well, that's just a default position on this show. And we're also going to talk about Spotify's new artist blocking feature. But first, magazine publisher Condé Nast has announced that it is constructing paywalls in various forms around its US websites. And that is of interest to us. It's music news. Because Condé Nast owns Pitchfork. The music website. That's the one, yep. Do they still do the print version? Did they do a print version? They did a sort of high-end, premium quality, four times a year, desperately trying to get some money out of their readers' print thing. That doesn't sound like something that would last very long. A few years ago, which is kind of relevant to this conversation. Yeah. So this is Condé Nast, one of the big magazine groups, saying that by the end of 2019, every single one of their US-based sites will have a paywall, which will mean that in order to access all of the content on those websites, you will need to pay Condé Nast some money. Yeah. Which kind of links into something which I'm sure we've talked about before on Setlist, which is... the need for money? Well, (laughs) the challenge is... Actually, we definitely talked about this when we talked about NME. That's when we talked about this. Yeah. The challenge is of how the frick you make money out of journalism, (laughs) let alone music journalism. Because back in the early days of the World Wide Web, mm. say that, I kind of mean the early 2000s. And that's... Yeah, you, I, you said that in the See Me Daily and I could see what you meant, but it's not really technically. Because that would be 1993, the early days of the World Wide mm. Web. I mean kind of 2001, 2002. But, you know. The early days of... People knowing what the right. web was. The early days of the web being something that people used. And in, in a of. general sense. Yes. So in the early 2000s is the point when magazine and newspaper owners started to realise there was this thing called the World Wide Web 
and that maybe that was something they should be getting involved in. A number of publishers, when they first set up their first websites, did try the subscription route, yeah. the paywall route, and they, they were trying to charge for their content online. Well, if that's what your business was, you put a newspaper in a newsstand, someone comes and gives you some money for it and they take it away. It's the obvious things to try to translate it into a digital form. But what they and found... assume that people would pay for it. Nobody would pay for it. No. <laughs> so in the main, that didn't work. Obviously, some business titles, finance titles, they managed to get a subscription thing off the ground quite early on. But most media realised that people wouldn't pay for anything online. Yeah, and I think probably the important thing to remember is at that time, people just wouldn't pay for anything online because they didn't trust the internet. Whereas now, you buy everything online. You don't even leave the house. But back then, the idea of putting your credit card details into a computer and it just going off into another computer somewhere people were very wary of, and probably rightly so at that time. Yeah, so I suppose it wasn't just that people were too stingy to pay, or they... Which I'm sure that also had something to do with it. <laughs> they were entitled and thinking they should get the content for free. And also, back in those days, paying for stuff online was a really clunky, awkward, horrible experience yeah. as well. So that also didn't help. And so, beyond sort of more businessy finance titles, the vast majority of newspaper owners and magazine owners in the early 2000s, I did one of two things, which is either they said, well, we'll just use our website to sell the print edition. So we won't really embrace the web. But those companies that said, no, no, we are going to embrace the web. We're going to put lots of content online. Or indeed, all the startup magazines that came along at that point who only existed online, like Pitchfork. Yeah. <laughs> with the exception of that quarterly thing that may or may not still exist. Should I Google it? <laughs> no, don't Google it. We're all done on Googling today. Most magazine owners and newspaper owners by sort of the mid-2000s had decided, OK, we're not going to do the paywall thing. We're not going to charge subscriptions. We'll go the ad-funded route. We'll make our content available for free. Because although it's still actually quite expensive and time-consuming to write articles and take photographs and do all of that, at least online we don't have to print anything and we don't have to distribute anything. So our costs are down. And we can reach more people. And we can reach more potentially. people. And we can reach a global audience. Whereas, I mean, traditionally, most newspapers and magazines only really were read in their home countries. And at that point, so probably we're still talking about the early 2000s here, not many brands were advertising online. Most of the people who were advertising online were other online businesses. Yeah. <laughs> so internet advertising had yet to properly take off. But what the media owners thought was, OK, well, we put our content online for free. And we start to build an audience. OK, for the first few years, we may not make much money. And it might, if we have a print title, we might see some people stop buying the print title because they're now getting it for free online. But surely at some point, internet advertising is going to take off. All the brands are going to start spending money on advertising. And if by that point, we've got a million people reading our website each month, we are going to be quids in and we don't have to pay any printing. We don't have to pay any distribution on this online content. It's all going to be fine, is what they fought. Woohoo! What could possibly go wrong? Google. Oh, yeah. And Facebook mm. is what could go wrong. Because it is true. Those titles, like NME, like Pitchfork, who made their content available online for free and were updating it every day and doing all the newsy stuff and all of that, did build significant audiences online. And then internet advertising did take off and it did explode and brands started pumping more and more money into advertising online. But what nobody really foresaw in the early 2000s was just how much of that internet advertising spend would go to search engines and social media. Because brands would much rather be pushing their products at people through search results and through social feeds than they would sort of buying the digital equivalent of a full page advert and sticking it on a traditional magazine or newspaper's website. So by the late 2000s, the start of this decade, it became clear that unless you have a website that has phenomenal traffic, so kind of 
mail online <laughs> levels of traffic. Yeah. And most websites will never get that because the only way you can get that level of traffic is, well, to be the mail online. Yeah. And who wants that? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody with any uh, credibility or kudos or... Uh, According to Microsoft's browser, should add citation. That's not our opinion. That's not that's our opinion. That's the opinion of... That's a, you can Google that stuff. I'll go and go, I could Google it and read it now, but... No. No? Stick it in the notes. Okay. The link to the Microsoft browser declaring the Daily Mail to be fake news. <laughs> but unless you're going to get sort of mail online levels of traffic, you'll never make enough money out of advertising alone to make the business work. And so we had a whole session, didn't we, at The Great Escape a couple of years ago, looking at this from a music media perspective. If we did. a music website, how do you make money on the assumption that you will never get the kinds of traffic you will need in order to make enough money on advertising alone? And so people have been doing things like Branded content, so Vice do quite a lot of that, where you actually allow the brands to get involved in making the content, or upselling tickets and t-shirts, and all other stuff that you can do where you have little affiliate links at the bottom of articles, and then moving into the events business and doing sponsored awards and tours and stuff like that. All the different ways that you can try and make money. But it has been interesting in the last couple of years watching a number of publishers, and initially it was mainly the broadsheet newspapers, having another go at the paywall. It would be so much easier if we could just get people to pay for the content, then we wouldn't have to allow brands to write our content. And we wouldn't have to be working out how many tickets we need to sell at two penny per upsell in order for this to work. We wouldn't have to get into the events business. And that's quite hard work. If we could just persuade people to start paying for the content. And bearing in mind that by this point, Spotify, Netflix, those services were starting to take off the Amazon services. We were now in an era where after a decade of everybody getting everything for free online, people were starting to pay, albeit for audio and video content. Yes, although I see that argument, but you're paying one video service for all your video, paying one music service for all your music, then there isn't like a Spotify for news content where you just pay one place every month and you get whatever news content at the moment. I mean, I read stuff from all... And it's different to when I grew up, my parents bought... And newspaper, and that was what they read every day. Whereas now I read news from all over the world, from hundreds of different titles. And I don't want to be paying each one of those individually for the one article I might read a week or a month, or maybe in some places a day. Yeah, it is true that uh, newspaper brands, magazine brands, don't tend to have the reader loyalty online that they did in print. So that is one of the challenges that this sort of slow move back to paywall in the sort of journalism space is facing. That said, I suppose the costs of running a newspaper, although they are quite high, are not as high as the cost of running Spotify and Netflix. And so I suppose two things there. Therefore, you can do a cheaper subscription than the sort of the £10 a month or whatever it is that Netflix are now charging. Also, whereas for Spotify's business model to work, it needs well in excess of 100 million paying users. And the same for Netflix, because their overheads for the content are so high. Yeah. Newspapers don't actually need hundreds of millions of people paying the monthly subscription. So even if you're right that the vast majority of people aren't interested in paying because they don't want to consume that much content, if a couple of million people will, then actually for a newspaper, you can probably build an all right business around a couple of million people paying for your content. And then you have a paywall where people can also access three or four articles a month for free and you put advertising around that. So you sort of have your two audiences. And yeah. that's what most of the newspapers yeah are now doing. The Times here in the UK was one of the first newspapers on this sort of second round of publishers having a go at paywall. 
And it has been kind of working. I mean, bearing in mind the Times was always a loss-making newspaper. Even in the heyday of print, it was always subsidised by the Sun after Murdoch bought it. And I suppose that's the difference. The Times paywalled everything. So you can't, if you don't pay, you can't read anything in the Times at all. And they've been doing that for quite a while now, and it's been seemingly been relatively successful. Whereas the Sun tried to do the same thing, and it was an absolute disaster. Which is an interesting point, that... After the Times put up their paywall and after a few teething problems, it seems to be slowly starting to work. We're now starting to see other broadsheet newspapers here in the UK and in the US following suit. But you're right, when the Sun tried it with tabloid-style content, complete disaster, which means all the other tabloids now, having watched that, are like, it's not going to work for us. Which I suppose brings us to the story we're talking about now, which is we've seen a number of broadsheet newspapers going back into paywall with mixed success, but some successes. and. On the back of that, we're now starting to see some magazine publishers, particularly those magazines which I guess are sort of the broadsheet magazines. So Condé Nast owned the New Yorker, and the New Yorker is known for its long articles. Boy, are those articles. (laughs) (laughs) So often I start reading a New Yorker article because it's kind of interesting, and then you do that quick scroll down, and you're like, oh my God. (laughs) I think there's only only actually one New Yorker article I've ever finished. (laughs) Ever read to the end. There's that one on Scientology. That was good. But New Yorker is publishing broadsheet newspaper-style content in a magazine format. And so Condé Nast put a paywall up around New Yorker a few years ago. That has seemingly been a success. So last year, they then applied it to two of their other big brands, so Wired and Vanity Fair websites. Those aren't the complete time-style paywalls where you can't get anything, but that you can only get a certain number of articles until you have to register and then pay. So they've now got three of their titles with paywalls of one kind or another in operation. And what Condé Nast said last week, albeit this is through an internal memo to their staff, it's not that they've uh, officially announced it to the world, although they did then give a few quotes to the Wall Street Journal, another site that has a paywall. (laughs) What Condé Nast has said is, it's worked for New Yorker, it worked for Wired, it worked for Vanity Fair, so we are now going to do this across all of our titles in the US, which includes Pitchfork, which comes back to that question of, yes, we have started to see some newspapers, some magazines having semi-successful paywalls in recent years. But does that mean you can apply this concept to everything? And I think of all the titles that Condé Nast own, Pitchfork will be, I mean, obviously for us, it's the most interesting because it's a music website. Yeah. But that will be an interesting test because past attempts to monetize music journalism online have not been successful. Okay, Pitchfork pitches itself as, as being slightly more, I don't know, journalistically credible. It's less sort of pop star gossipy news stories and has a bit more criticism in there and a little bit more proper journalism. But I mean, we're not talking New Yorker level no. <laughs> journalism in the main. I generally get to the end of Pitchfork articles. So Canapé will work on Pitchfork. And so it will be really interesting to see once Condé Nast roll this out, what kind of paywall do they go with on Pitchfork? How much content would you be able to access for free? Will they start doing new content that is unique and you can only get if you pay? And then, of course, once it's all set up, whether or not anyone will pay for this or whether the result of this is that Pitchfork lose all of their readers. Well, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? I mean, I can't imagine that they're going to cut everything off because I think to do that straight off in an area of journalism that has definitely shown people to be unwilling to pay fees. I don't think anyone's really done paywalls in music journalism at all. Rolling Stone tried. Rolling Stone, yeah. On their archive. Didn't work. So I think to do that straight off would be quite foolish. But I can see that they would try the, a certain number of articles for free. As someone who's already said paywalls aren't for you because you have no loyalty whatsoever to anybody in the media space, is that meaning that 
Let's say it was a dollar a month unlimited. Would you pay Pitchfork a dollar a month? Well, I would uh, charge it to the company. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that means I would pay it. <laughs> yeah. That's no help. No, so not professionally. Personally, would you pay a dollar a month? Uh, well, it's I not looking good because they're going to want more than a dollar. Yeah, and I, I, I don't go to it in a personal capacity, so I don't know. Right, but I mean, it, I think well, it, it, that's hard to say because all of the, like music, I only go to music websites in a business professional capacity. I would, I don't ever read them for fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think podcasting is possibly something we could talk about in these terms because that I'd listen to lots and lots of podcasts. And would you pay a dollar a month for your well, favorite podcast? I think the yes, I do. Um, oh, you do already <laughs> two. Two pounds. I think the problem with that is is that like, I mean, I have a TV license and that covers me all the BBC content, all my radio stuff, and it sort of it just it just happens, and it's a thing you have to have anyway. The problem with something like podcasting is that I listen to lots and lots of podcasts, all of them coming from different people. I mean, some of them there are like podcast production companies that have various shows underneath them, and I maybe listen to two or three shows from one company. So that's different because those companies will do like fundraising where you can pay that company and the money is spread out throughout the shows. But it's still like lots of shows spread out and I have to pay all of them pretty much individually. If I had a podcast app that said, give us £10 a month and we will share it out between all the shows you listen to, that would be different. For example, what if Spotify was to suddenly start saying podcasts are £2 a month extra, but we will share that with the makers of the podcasts? I might do that. You might do that. But that's still not helping Pitchfork. Not all of the shows I listen to are on Spotify. Well, okay, but let's say they were. But even your willingness to reluctantly pay a pound to some podcast somewhere. No, I would if there was a way of just like, because it's, it's not easy. If I if Here's the, the question, app I used, though. I just paid money to that app and they sorted it all out. I would do that. Bringing it back to the point, which I realise we've not been doing a very good job of on this week's set list. I'm not sure we've been anywhere near the point. <laughs> but bringing it back to the point. Would the, what you've just said, yep. that if there was a podcast app that had every single podcast you're interested in, paid it a few pounds a month, and you knew that that was being shared with the makers, mm. that's great. If a similar app or website existed, pulling in journalism from newspapers and magazines all over the world, sharing the money with the publishers and journalists behind that content, would you pay for that? Yeah. I mean, I already use two apps that do that, so uh, I would pay one of those probably. So maybe that is how Condé Nast can get money out of the notoriously hard to get money out of Andy Malt. Problem is, though, then you get into the whole intermediary thing. I'm not paying the makers directly. And maybe they won't like that. Maybe they won't be happy with the amount of money they're getting. No one ever is, are they? No. People are hard to please. Anyway, it's interesting to see across all of Condé Nast magazines, but particularly Pitchfork, quite how they make good on this commitment to put subscriptions onto all of their American sites. And then, of course, whether or not for Pitchfork, it works. Still to come, Spotify passes its hateful conduct policy onto users with individual artist blocking. But now, midnight on the 18th of January was the deadline for secondary ticketing websites via GoGo and StubHub to comply with the demands of the UK's Competition and Markets Authority which took action to ensure that the ticket resale platforms were complying with all relevant consumer laws. Uh, Viagogo, prior to that deadline, issued a statement via a tweet saying that it was now completely compliant. Various critics of Viagogo replied, no, you aren't. That included some people in the secondary ticketing industry. Now, 
The CMA, having said it would have a look at all this, has issued a new statement saying, no, not compliant. Yeah, so this story all dates back to November 2017 when the CMA, a government agency here in the UK, confirmed that it was going to properly investigate the then four big ticket resale platforms used by online ticket outs here in the UK. So that was StubHub, owned by eBay, the aforementioned Viagogo. Owned by Viagogo. Owned by Viagogo. And then the two Live Nation Ticketmaster sites, so Seatwave and Get Me In. And basically, the CMA was responding to those in the music community and the consumer rights groups who were critical of online ticket touting and who had said that there were various consumer rights laws out there that should be regulating the reseller tickets online, some of which have been specifically put into law with ticket touting in mind. Yeah. Others were already just in there. And they were saying, we have these rules. We probably want more rules, more regulations. But before we even think about that, no one's enforcing the existing regulations. And so somebody should take responsibility for that. And so it was generally decided that probably the police were already overworked and it shouldn't be that we get the police to start investigating it. So this thing called the Competition Markets Authority said that it would investigate. And on the back of that investigation, it then put out a list of demands, which was basically a bullet point summary of the rules and consumer rights laws that it felt was relevant to all of these secondary sites. And it said to Ticketmaster, and to StubHub, eBay, and to Viagogo, okay, we've done you a nice little bullet point list. These are all the things that you must be doing in order to be compliant with UK law. And it set a deadline for when that should be done, which is, as you said, was uh, earlier this month. And then shortly after the CMA had made those demands, StubHub kind of said, all right, then we'll deal with that. We'll get it done by the deadline. Live Nation Ticketmaster initially said, all right, then we'll uh, comply with that. We'll get that done. And then, of course, a few months later, they just shut their sites down. That's what so we're doing. It. Live Nation no longer have resale sites in Europe. So therefore, are fully compliant. Yeah. With all of the demands, they're definitely not breaking any of the rules because they're not doing resale for profit anymore. That said, the main Ticketmaster site is going to do some ticket resale, although capped. But the CMA did say that just shutting down your two secondary sites doesn't get you out of it. They're still going to be monitoring what's happening on that site too. Yes. So it's going to be face value resale in essence on the main Ticketmaster yeah. site, albeit with an admin fee charged on top. But it did mean in terms of these specific demands that the CMA had made, we were no longer watching the Ticketmaster sites because by this point they had gone. And then, of course, we had Viagogo. And so Viagogo does the classic thing where it doesn't respond, doesn't speak. And then it sort of is resistant and not very helpful. So ultimately, late last year, CMA had to go to court and they got a court order. Yes, yeah, something that Viagogo has consistently described as an agreement. But actually, is not what a court order is. An injunction from the court, basically cutting and pasting CMA's bullet point list into an injunction and saying to Viagogo, you have to do this by this date, because if you don't, it's now a court order. That will be contempt of court. Contempt of court's a big thing. And so you must make sure that you do this. So as you said, last week was the deadline. So we no longer have the Live Nation sites. So it's looking at StubHub and Viagogo. And it is certainly true on StubHub. I mean, I've not rigorously gone through and checked, but most of the things the CMA were demanding do seem to be there. So therefore, all eyes are on Viagogo. Just before the deadline, the CMA also published a list reminding us of some of the things that they were looking for. Yeah, which included ensuring that buyers are told any seat numbers linked to the tickets they're buying, that the name of the seller is published if the seller is selling those tickets commercially, 
and that any risks of touted tickets being cancelled by a promoter are clearly stated. So those were the CMA's top demands. They also had some extra things they wanted from Viagogo. Yeah, Viagogo was told to stop using misleading messaging and to sort out its quite notoriously bad refund system. So that's what the CMA wanted. As you said, the day that the deadline was kicking in at midnight, Viagogo took to its corporate Twitter feed, which is where it now speaks to the world. Yeah. We talked about that on Setlist last year, how Viagogo, having not said anything about anything for years, suddenly popped up on Twitter again. And so they put out a statement on Twitter saying, we are now compliant. And then lots of people, the Fanfare campaign, obviously, who've been leading from the music side on trying to get tickets outing for profit properly regulated in the UK. They did a check. I did a very quick check. And it was me, the obvious, yeah. Changes have been made. There are certain things on here which were not here before. But there's plenty of things on here which are still an issue if we look at the CMA's bullet point list. Fanfare also pointed out that some of the tweaks they had made, although you could see that they were motivated to meet some of the CMA's demands, actually made things more confusing. (laughs) And given part of this, is trying to make sure that no consumer is in any doubt as to what it is that they are buying. The fact that they are buying a ticket from a tout, an unofficial seller, that may not even get them into the show because a promoter usually in the terms and conditions has the right to cancel a touted ticket. The aim was to make sure that every ticket buyer was aware that that is what was happening. But actually, in some ways, some of the Vigogo changes have made it even more confusing for the poor ticket buyer. Initially, the CMA said, we're looking into it. We'll come back to you with a statement on whether or not we think Viagogo is compliant and if not, what we're going to do. And actually, as we're recording this just a couple of hours ago, that statement from the CMA came in. Yes. So I'm sure everyone is very excited to find out whether Viagogo has followed the rules or not. <laughs> Even if this podcast wasn't coming out three days after this announcement, I think that nobody <laughs> was in any doubt, really. Let's read the CMA statement. It says... Following initial checks, the CMA has serious concerns that Viagogo has not complied with important aspects of the court order we secured against them. The CMA has now raised these concerns with Viagogo and expects them to make any necessary changes without delay. If they do not, the CMA will return to court to ensure they do. So that sort of suggests there could be even more Viagogo drama. Well, we could have that contempt of court case occurring very soon. That would be fun. The uh, 20th anniversary special editions of Setlist that we're doing where we recap the big stories of the last 20 years. We have a Spotify one of them coming up quite soon. But then after that, we're probably going to do Viagogo, aren't yeah. we? So it may well be that we've got a big dramatic finale for that when, uh, I don't know, contempt of court, when they pull in the Viagogo bosses and the judge cuts their head off. Is that, is that what happens with contempt of court? I think so, yeah. I can't quite remember what happens with contempt Puts of court. Puts it on a spike. Yeah. So... Uh, Interesting developments on the never-ending secondary ticketing front this week. There was one other very quick bit of touting news that we all mention. Yes, last week at the Eurosonic Conference and Festival in the Netherlands, a new anti-touting campaign group was launched, similar to the Fanfare Alliance in the UK, but this is Europe-wide, called the Face Value European Alliance for Ticketing, or FEAT for short, F-E-A-T. Yes, so this is backed by a number of promoters, tour promoters, festival promoters, etc., in a number of different European countries. And although a lot of what we've talked about on Setlist when it comes to the whole second ticketing story has been UK-centric, because we've had the fanfare campaign here, we've had lots of conversations in Parliament, we've had the CMA work, etc. So there's been a lot of developments in trying, trying to curtail and regulate second ticketing here in the UK. But of course, there have been developments elsewhere in the world, been quite big developments in Australia and New Zealand, but also in some other European countries. But at the same time, there are some countries in Europe where there hasn't really been a grassroots campaign, whether that's led by the music community or consumer rights groups, etc. 
on this issue. And so what this new organisation and campaign is trying to do is to lobby across Europe, both on a national level where there isn't a fanfare, but then also is there a role for the European Union to have some consumer right regulation to, uh, well, you can tell by the name, can't you? Face value, European Alliance for Ticketing. Basically what this organisation is saying, which is pretty much what fanfare has always said, that they're not against the idea of a fan who can no longer go to a show selling on the ticket so they don't lose their money and having platforms and exchanges that allow that to happen, whether that's a bespoke thing like Twickets or it's inbuilt into the primary ticket seller like what Ticketmaster is now doing in Europe, that's fine. It is the platforms which are there for touts that do this as a business and they mark up the ticket prices for in-demand shows and in essence the fans are the losers. That is what they want to see regulated and curtailed across Europe is what this new campaign is doing. But Viagogo haven't responded at all to this new campaign. No, which is quite weirdly unusual. It is. The the newly chatty Viagogo. StubHub, who are now very keen to position themselves as the good guys of secondary ticketing in the UK because the Live Nation sites have gone. And when you sit next to Viagogo, you're going to look like a good guy, aren't you? Even if you're not. StubHub have responded. They are quite critical of this new organisation and some of the language the new organisation is using. And they pulled out the classic defence of ticket resale and the second ticketing sites that we haven't actually heard in a while now. But back in the early days when people were trying to regulate sector ticketing, this is the line that people always pulled out and StubHub pulled it out again in criticising the agenda of this new campaign. Yes, what they're saying is that by trying to regulate sites like StubHub and Viagogo out of being able to allow people to sell tickets for profit, that market won't disappear. It will just go back to social media and other less regular or not regulated sites where people are more likely to get ripped off and generally have a bad time of it. And so ultimately, they're saying that it would be worse for consumers to try to regulate them out of business. StubHub also said, we support efforts to make secondary ticketing more transparent, like what is now happening in the UK. Although the FEET organisation then did point out that it took the CMA investigation and demands for StubHub to suddenly be a fan of transparency. They then said, we like more transparency in secondary ticketing. Could we have more transparency in primary ticketing, please? Which is fair. (laughs) Which is actually quite a good point. But I suppose the thing that they were really criticising was this idea that maybe the ultimate regulation in secret ticketing is a cap where you say no one can resell a ticket more than 10, 20% than the face value, which is something that is being considered in Ireland at the moment. It is something that has actually been put in place in parts of Australia and is now on the conversation as being something you might do across Australia. And so the idea of outlawing the resale of tickets for more than 10 or maybe 20% of face value, that is obviously StubHub's core business, is allowing that profit to be made. So that was the thing that they were saying we don't approve of. And then, in essence, trying to distract everybody by saying you should be campaigning on transparency issues rather than this. Yes. So as you can see, if you thought this debate was coming anywhere close to a close, it is not. It's going to keep going on and going on for some time yet. Yes, even if we're near any sort of resolution in the UK, which we are in a way, but maybe we're not in another way. What about the rest of the world? So uh, this being a globally available, internationally focused, world-friendly podcast, I'm sure we'll still be talking about secretary ticketing come 2029 or who knows, CMU's 40th anniversary, (laughs) 10 years after that. Before we get to our final story this week, I mean, as previously discussed, there's no paywall around this podcast, so we need some money. Uh, so should we do some plugging? Let's plug something, although yeah. 
I've got something to plug first that is free. Not even asking for any money. Well, don't do that. Giving away yet more stuff. Yeah, we must do some plugging because last week, as you listen to this podcast, the Music Managers Forum published another of the Digital Dollar Guides that we here at CMU Insights have been working on for a number of years now. You all know what the Dissecting Digital Dollar Project is. I don't. Please tell me. It's the 454, quite a few years now, project that CMU Insights has been doing with the Music Managers Forum here in the UK. At its core, explaining how the streaming business is working, how the streaming business model is structured, the licensing deals, how people get paid. So we've been doing it for a number of years. You can buy the book, which you've not been including in the uh, setlist notes for a while now, I notice. I'll put it in now you've mentioned it. Buy the Dissecting Digital Dollar book that explains all of that. But in addition to the core Digital Dollar book, which is all about how a Spotify-type streaming service works and how people get paid, we've also been doing these guides looking at other ways that the rise of digital and all those digital platforms have impacted on the way that artists do businesses. So in 2017, we had the deals guide that outlined all the different kinds of label and distribution deals that are now available in the streaming age. And so last week, we brought out the latest of those guides. It's called the Fan Data Guide. So basically, it is looking at all the different kinds of data that various platforms and music companies are gathering about the fans of an artist's music, and then asking the crucial question, do the artists get to see that data? Now, of course, last year, for about a week, everybody was talking about data protection law, weirdly, when the stupid GDPR thing came in. Do you remember that week? I do remember it. Which was when data protection rules across Europe were amended. And so that put data and the use of data and the sharing of data back into the spotlight. And so what this new fan data guide does is it looks at the 10 different kinds of fan data that are out there. It talks about who it is that is gathering that data. And then crucially, from an artist's perspective and from a manager of the artist's perspective, it's saying, how does the artist access that data? And partly that's being aware that data's even been collected. Partly it's working with your record companies and your ticketing companies and your tour promoters to make sure that the artist is getting access to any data that is available. But then there is a data protection element. So for example, if you're an artist and you go on tour of a promoter and the promoter is gathering email addresses for a ticketing company of everyone who comes to the show, Can the artist get those email addresses? Well, first of all, will the ticketing company give the tour promoter the email addresses to start with? There are commercial reasons why they might not want to. Will the promoter give the email addresses to artists and management? There may be commercial reasons why they don't want to. But even if everybody in that supply chain, if you like, was happy for the artist to have the data, if at the point that the ticketing company takes the email address, they are not saying to the fan, would you like to be added to the artist's mailing list? This is what is going to happen to your email address. This is where it's going to sit. This is how you can check in the future what data people have about you and get it amended or removed. If you don't say that at the point the email address is collected, then the ticketing company can't give it to the promoter, let alone the artist. And so artists and their management teams need to be completely aware of what data is out there, who has it, and crucially get data into any deal making that they do. So that is what the fan data guide is all about. It's quite a short guide won't take very long to read, split into the 10 sections around those different categories of data. We launched it last week. It's free. You can download it from either the MMF website or the CMU Insights website. So go and grab yourself a copy. You really should. If you're an artist or a manager, it's an invaluable guide because there's a lot more data out there being created around you or your artists than you probably realise. And it lays out all that very clearly because I know it's become a slightly running joke that I haven't read your book <laughs> on this show. But, well, you made me proofread this I one. I did. So uh, I have read it and you it is good. have read the fan data guide. But that's free. But you can give us some money because while we're talking about dissecting digital dollar, 
The Senior Insights Masterclasses and Seminars are coming back. In February, we have the Dissecting Digital Dollar Masterclass on the 4th of February at the London HQ of Lewis Silkin in central London. And that's basically the half-day event where, if like Andy Malt, you can't be bloody bothered to read the Dissecting Digital Dollar I'm book. I'm reading the Beastie Boys book. It's much better than your book. <laughs> well, get that. you don't Great. have to read it. The Beastie you, Boys book. Well, no, there's an audio book. You can come to my masterclass in London on the 4th of February. And what do I'll, you know about the Beastie Boys? Oh, uh, right, we're talking about your thing. I'm not going to talk about the Beastie Boys. You should do. They, I will say really nothing good. about the Beastie Boys. What I will do is to explain to you how the streaming business works and how Spotify knows what to pay everybody or not, as the case may be, every month. So that's on the 4th of Feb. Also on the 4th of Feb, in the evening, is the first of our free music copyright seminars that we're running each Monday evening in February. That's three, not free. Just to be clear, oh, <laughs> there's yeah, three I, of them. I don't pronounce three very well, unfortunately. Money will change hands. And then definitely not free. <laughs> but there are three of them, yeah. just to clarify. So we've got the Dissected Order Masterclass on the 4th of Feb, and then we've got the Music Copyright Seminars on the 4th, and then add seven to that. What would that be? 11? And then add seven to that. What would that be? 18? Sure. Does that sound about right? Of course, yeah. Get your tickets for the copyright seminars in February. If you go to seemingsights.com, you can access information about that masterclass, about that seminar, and also about other events that we've got coming up. There are other events coming up. We haven't really got time to go through all of those now, but uh, they're, and they're not all in London. There's Output Belfast. There's something in Chelmsford. There's no, it's in London. I won't mention it. Um, <laughs> but I'll put links to all of the upcoming events in the show notes for this show at setlistpodcast.com if you're interested in coming to them or if you just want a link to download a free data guide. And finally this week, Spotify's hateful conduct policy having so spectacularly backfired last year, the streaming service has now implemented a new thing where you can basically decide who is hateful and block them yourself. Basically, you can now block artists on Spotify. Yeah, so what that means is if you open up your Spotify app... Currently you, the iOS app only. And you go to the artist's page and you can say, never play me a track by that artist. And I suppose, obviously, you're never going to voluntarily listen to that artist's music because if you can be bothered to go and block them, then clearly you're not going to personally go and click play on any of those tracks. But, of course, lots of people navigate Spotify through playlists. And so it is a way of ensuring that certain artists never pop up on your playlists as it happens. Well, there's playlists and there's the radio function as well. You don't get to choose who is played in the, in the radio section of it. So you could accidentally end up listening to an artist you feel is objectionable. And the day before they actually announced this new functionality and they finally got around to adding it because people have been calling for this option for quite some time. And not just for hateful conduct reasons, because there are certain artists you can't stand their voice or you can't stand their music. Yeah, so people it's... have been requesting it a long time. And in 2017, Spotify said that after serious consideration, they had decided not to implement this feature. But the day before they announced that actually they'd had a change of heart and now that they are, I signed up to a new playlist on Spotify. I don't do that very often. But I watched a TV show on Netflix and they had quite a good soundtrack. And you know how somebody somewhere, as soon as a new show goes on Netflix, creates a playlist on Spotify. Yeah. And so I signed that up and it all started downloading to my phone. And then I realised there was a Chris Brown track on there. Oh, Actually, it wasn't a Chris Brown track. He was featuring on somebody else's track. But it's like, oh, I don't want a Chris Brown track playing on my phone. I wish there was a way that I could just tell Spotify to never play me a Chris Brown track. And then, lo and behold, two hours later, <laughs> in the feed popped up the announcement. So maybe that was why they did it. Maybe. Well, I mean, I had the opposite thing, like literally opposite. Uh, I had several artists that I do want to listen to on Spotify who for about the last six months I have not been able to play. Just like it won't play them. And I've been through various things with Spotify tech support trying to work it out. And uh, it turned out that those artists 
were all blocked on my account. So what you're feature, saying is... But there was no way of turning it off because that feature did not exist publicly. So they so, hadn't added this feature in response to me saying, I don't want Chris Brown. What you're saying is this feature... They said, you listen to the fall too much. We're just going <laughs> to block it on your account. <laughs> so all that means is this feature has been there in the background for the last six months. Yeah. And you, Andy Malta, such an early adopter, you were blocking <laughs> artists without knowing before it was even publicly possible to block artists. But you mentioned, although you can block artists for whatever reason you want to, this does link to Spotify's attempts last year to say we are not going to playlist content, which is either in itself hateful or is by an artist who has been accused of or possibly convicted of hateful conduct. That was a policy Spotify introduced last year. There was a huge backlash, particularly to the idea that artists would be kicked off Spotify playlists on the basis of allegations of hateful conduct. This is all something we talked about on last week's set list. Well, also, there was sort of, I mean, Spotify drew up its list of artists. It started with R. Kelly and Tentacion. But then it wasn't clear what Spotify would, you know, how, how Spotify decided what artists would or wouldn't be on this blacklist. And I mean, various groups started drawing up lists of all artists who've had allegations or convictions against them. When someone writes down a list of artists who've done things that are objectionable, it's a long list and uh, you could quickly not have anything to listen to. Yeah, so Spotify kind of quite quickly backtracked on that commitment to have this uh, hateful conduct blacklist and stop playlisting artists who are on that list. As I say, we talked about it on last week's set list because of the latest revelations and controversies around R. Kelly in the wake of that documentary, Surviving R. Kelly. We talked about that quite a lot on last week's set list. I was kind of worried when I listened back to last week's podcast that I came across as being sympathetic towards R. Kelly on last week's podcast. I don't think you did. Which I'd like to stress that I am not in any way, I had it in the script saying I was going for journalistic balance. Well, the point is... Related to that story. Not balance, just being neutral. I do have fundamental concerns with the notion of trial by media and people being yes. commercially ruined based on allegations in the media or on social media feeds. I don't think that's a satisfactory way for us to structure society. But as I also said on last week's set list, the issue is when it comes to the kind of allegations being made against R. Kelly, the criminal justice system in the US, UK, elsewhere has proven itself to be pretty rubbish at dealing with those sorts of allegations and protecting those victims. And therefore, that's, for me, the real issue here, which is we need to find a way to make the criminal justice system work rather than relying on trial by media, which is not great, which I suppose is playing towards what R. Kelly's remaining supporters would say, which is these are only allegations, there's been no convictions, which is why I worry that I come across as being sympathetic to him. I don't have any particular insider knowledge on this, but I mean, there are so many allegations now and there's such serious allegations I don't really have any sympathy for him because I think most of his allegations have a lot of substance to them. But what we did talk about last week was the challenges around if you're a Spotify or you're a Sony Music and you have R. Kelly's music on your platform or you're playlisting R. Kelly's music or in the case of Sony Music, you're releasing R. Kelly's music. And then there are allegations, but without actual charges, let alone convictions. And then the world at large says you should stop working with this artist. You should stop playlisting this artist. You can make a commercial decision. So actually, shortly after we'd finished recording last week's set list, a report in Variety said that Sony have actually dropped R. Kelly. Yes, and Billboard published that report independently of Variety as well. So they had two media sources saying this has happened. So, well, Sony hasn't commented on this story at all along the way. And then basically the sources for both those publications said Sony's still not going to comment, but he's disappeared from the RCA website now. They're not going to release the remaining two albums they took so long to reach a conclusion on this because they wanted to, A, really assess the various allegations 
against him and also make sure that they were legally covered so wouldn't get sued by R. Kelly for terminating his contract. But as we kind of alluded to on last week's set list, even though those reports had not at that point come out, to an extent, that's a commercial decision. He is now a toxic brand. So why would anybody want to be working with a toxic brand? But also, is there a moral dimension to that decision? Can you have a moral dimension to that decision without there being a conviction or charges or whatever? But it is tricky for those companies, even with allegations as serious and substantial as this. Yes, but there were all, I mean, Billboard also confirmed with Universal Music Publishing that they actually terminated his contract last April and just not commented on it. Although, I mean, both companies, they're not going to take on any new material from him, although both still are working with his existing catalogues of songs and recordings. So they've not completely cut themselves off from him. But from a Spotify perspective, given that when they tried to do this hateful conduct thing last year, initially they got a load of praise for it, and then they got a huge backlash for it. I mean, in some ways, even though they would probably say this new functionality where you can remove artists from all playlists and radio functions, etc., isn't just about hateful conduct. Because I say it, maybe you just don't like an artist and you don't want them to ever play in your Spotify experience. But it does empower the user if they have sort of moral or ethical objections to a certain artist to ensure that they never have to listen to that artist's music or indeed support that artist. Because of course, when you play an artist's music, I mean, it's fractions of a penny that the artist is earning, particularly once all the other business partners have taken their cut. But I suppose if it happens well, to pop up... Well, you say that, but it's all percentage. And so while that does, in theory, lower the amount that an artist might earn, the fact that you haven't played them doesn't stop your money going to them because that's not how Spotify works. That is true, but the fact that you're listening to another artist instead of that artist yeah. means that overall, that artist who you have a problem with probably isn't going to see as much money at the end of the day in their Spotify check. But you're now saying the only solution to this is user-centric royalty distribution, which we do not have time to talk about <laughs> on this week's set list. No, unfortunately not. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting topic for discussion. Let's save it for another day. We're going to talk about it at the CMU conference at The Great Escape in May. Come to that! All right, we'll talk about it there. Uh, but yeah, that's all we've got time for this week. Tell everyone about this. Everyone. Doesn't matter if you think they'll be interested or not. They will be. Just tell them uh, because the more people you tell, the better. That's, yeah, that's my plug. <laughs> I'm, go I'm good at selling stuff. Well done. Setlist is the music business podcast from CMU. Presented by Andy Malt, that's me. And Chris Cook, that is not me. It's produced by Matt Peaty. It's edited by Jason Wolfe. And for more on CMU, go to completemusicupdate.com. Recorded at Unique Facilities, Setlist is an unlimited production. Music